0: Hello, my name's Stephen Vag, and I'm doing the audio commentary for The Kangaroo Kid, a 1950 film uh, made in Australia. Generally, to be brutally frank, probably an undistinguished Western, but I wanted to do it because in... It's generally undistinguished except for one big thing, it was uh, made in Australia at a time when very, very few films were made in that country, my country, I should say. Um, Just to help you sync up, the credit sequence I'm going off is, uh, it's in the middle of the credit sequence now, the film I'm going off goes for 68 minutes. I've read accounts of the version of the, the, the film, actually officially goes for 72 minutes. Um, this film does feel fairly choppy. Um, So I assume that's where the four minutes went. I don't know why that's around there. The version I'm going off is the one out there on YouTube. I assume the film's in the public domain because it's an Eagle Lion film. The the distributors were Eagle Lion and most of their films are in the public domain. So I'm just going off that. Um, This is actually... Quite, on its own terms a, a very enjoyable um, and pretentious B-Western um, with a great novelty factor of, of course it's uh, made in Australia most with the help of that man, man there T.O. McCready the producer Tom McCready is directed by Leslie Salander who's uh, if you're a Western fan of, of B-Westerns in particular you would have seen his name on lots of films over the years uh, this opening scene was uh, shot in a studio in sydney uh, when i first saw this i i assumed it was in hollywood because that actor on the left is uh, raymond bailey he plays quinn the actor on the right is the star jock mahoney um the former stuntman who's uh, i think this is his first leading role in a western but raymond bailey um, may be familiar to you for playing the role of mr drysdale in the beverly hillbillies and uh, i was i thought oh okay i didn't know he I didn't think he was Australian at all. I, I thought maybe they shot this in Hollywood, but no, it was shot in Australia. What happened was uh, Raymond Bailey was out in Australia on the company of Oklahoma. The musical, Australia's cultural cringe, was so strong at the time, this film was made in 1950, that they would, when they imported musicals, they would, would r- routinely import uh, members of the cast from America as well, even though there would have been plenty of Australian actors uh, able to the role i mean i mean there's no slight on on mr bailey's ability i'm sure he was very good in the role just it wasn't exactly a star name but um that's how i guess i guess maybe insecure australians were when it came to putting on american musicals so when oklahoma was touring uh, they brought out some americans including raymond bailey which meant he was in australia to play uh, this small role in this film the reason uh why this film is so unusual is that um, this the uh, Australian film industry had been pretty much wiped out entirely by World War II. Um, during that period, there was only one locally made film called The Rats of Tobruk. We'd had a pretty decent industry in the 1930s, but um, when the war came along, it sort of was really knocked on its feet. Uh, afterwards, there was a sort of a mini-boom, a, a false dawn is it proof? Sorry, just to pause, um, that uh, female actor there on the left, her name is uh, Sheila Maguire. She's a New Zealand model and actor who appeared in a few stage plays around this time. Notably, um, ladies in a Turkish bath You uh, know, picture were often in the paper because she's uh, very beautiful. She just sort of pops up and we don't really see much of her again. Anyway, yes, yeah, so after World War II, there was a bit of a mini-burn, a false dawn of the revival of the Australian film industry led by the success of a uh, British-financed film shot in Australia called The Overlanders that came out in 1946 and made a star of Chips Rafferty. That includes a gentleman called uh, Red Ransom who's in this movie. And also there was another Australian film at that time made with overseas capital called Smithy, a biopic of Charles Kingsford Smith. And those two films were very popular and people thought that, oh, okay, the industry's uh, going to come back. Um, but it never quite did. Sorry, just to pause there. That actor there is called Ben Lewin. He was a very experienced um, stage and radio actor of the time. Uh, yeah. So what happens? By the late 40s, there are quite a few uh, unsuccessful films made in Australia. Ealing Studios, who financed The Overlanders, invested in two, two films that turned out to be flops, Eureka Stockade and Bitter Springs. Both quite good films, by the way. They were just financially unsuccessful. In Columbia Pictures, who'd financed Smithy, we weren't making, interested in making any more movies. and Australian distributors and cinema chains were very reluctant to invest themselves. Some of them had been burnt, and filmmaking is a very uncertain industry. So um, for, the, for the 1950s and 1960s, uh, filmmaking in Australia was really, really hard. The, this country only turned out about maybe one or two films a year, of, uh, of which of this, this was some. This was one. sorry. Um, in 1950, there was still optimism things could get back on track. Uh, When this film was made, um, Sons of Matthew, that's a 1949 film, had been a big hit. And uh, Charles Chevelle, the director of that, was going to make another one. Ken G. Hall, who had been very successful in the 1930s and he'd made Smithy, he was trying to make a version of Robbery Under Arms. Um, So Alexander Corder was trying to make a, a film from the novel Smiley, which actually would be made for a couple of years later. And 20th Century Fox were looking at making a film called Kangaroo, that's it became known as Kangaroo. There was also a planned biopic of a pianist called Eileen Joyce which ended up becoming Wherever She Goes. So um, the 1950 when this film was made there was it was sort of like there was some optimism that things might turn around but within a year or two that was that was pretty much over. Now sorry just a note on this uh, scene this is shot in the Blue Mountains which is just to the uh, west of Sydney. Stunning region, region uh, definitely worth seeing if you ever come to Australia. That gentleman uh, on the left is Alec Kellaway. He is uh, the brother of Cecil Kellaway, who some of you may know, he had a very long career in uh, Hollywood. Um, the Kellaway family were actually originally from South Africa and they emigrated to Australia where they had quite a lot of success on stage. Cecil became a stage star which then led to Australian films with Kenji Hall, who I've mentioned and there's some kangaroos. (laughs) This film is full of lots of shots of native fauna and flora Um, and Cecil Kellaway sort of starred in a few Australian films which helped him get into Hollywood and he had a very successful long Hollywood career as a a character actor in films like The Postman Always Rings Twice and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. That's his brother Alec. Alec was also a stage actor, not quite as successful as as Cecil, but an excellent actor in his in his own right. He was a, a semi-regular in Kenji Hall's films of the 1930s, films like Dad and Dave Come to Town and Come Up Smiling. He always, he you know, he played support roles, but he was always excellent. He was a particular favourite of director Kenji Hall because he said Alec would always disappear into his role. And he certainly does, like every role that Alec kellaway plays, you often sometimes have to do a double-take to realise it's him because he really buries it you know he's not like a, say a Walter Brennan Oop, there's some koalas sorry uh, you know again what I mean shoving in pictures of local fauna um yeah he's not like a Walter Brennan not that Walter Brennan's not wonderful but um Walter Brennan sort of played variations on a very specific persona whereas Alec Kellyway sort of buried himself in his parts um and he sort of he uh was very busy actor on stage mostly while there were very few films made in Australia in this time, Australia had a thriving radio and theatre scene up until around about nineteen fifty six when that's when T V came to Australia and things got a bit more difficult. So um, all the Australian actors you see in this and there are quite a few, they were predominantly radio and, and theatre actors because that's what they had to do. Anyway, the first mention uh, the first mention I've found of this been able to find of this film came out in November 1949, the American producer Howard C. Brown announced he wanted to make a western in Australia called *The Adventures of the Kangaroo Kid*. He was going to do that in collaboration with Australia's Embassy Pictures for release by Eagle Lion. Uh, and Brown said he wanted to film the movie in the hills of Sydney at a new studio and hoped to start filming on January the 15th in uh, 1950. In the final event, this film didn't start until March. Uh, Brown said he wanted to star Richard Denning and Adele Jurgens that uh, John English to direct and he wanted an actor called uh, Kippy Valdez to play a native girl which I found interesting because there's no inverted commas native girl in this final film it made me wonder that maybe um, in original draft of this film there was someone who was meant to be a native girl unless it's uh, the p- part of an Australian girl I, I assume when they say native I assume that they meant someone who, who was going to be Aboriginal anyway in January 1950 It was announced that uh, The Kangaroo Kid was going to be the first in a series of low-budget films that were going to be made as a co-production between Australia's Embassy Pictures and Howard C. Brown Productions. The Australian producer, Tom Tom McCready, he'd flown to Hollywood before Christmas in order to sign the deal. Um, Tom's brother, Alex, who opted acted on this as a production manager said The Kangaroo Kid is the first Australian film for which distribution contracts have been signed before the film has started. American distribution may give our boys and girls a chance to make good in America. Wait, anyway, sorry, just to just to pause there, those two actors there that's Martha Hire on the left, um, and Guy Dolman on the right. Now Martha Hire, this was very on early on in her career um, she's a very she's better known for being blonde, you know. Not to sum it up, you know, a, a very good actor. She was Oscar nominated for *Some Came Running*. You may remember her from the film *The Carpetbaggers*. And she later went on to marry the producer Hal Wallace. She actually wrote a memoir in which this film does not feature, even though it was made. You know, that coming to Australia, you think that would have been a bit of a trip. Anyway, I think when I read that, I was maybe a little bit put out because I'm of course Australian. Um, Guy Dolman on the right, he um, was uh, from New Zealand originally. They moved over to Australia to further his career. Um, he ended up leaving um, Australia to go to England for a period of time and he pops up in films like The Ipcrest File and Thunderball. And uh, Guy Dolman had previously been in a film made by uh, Tom and Alec MacReady, the MacReady Brothers, called Always Another Dawn. So he was a, a favourite of theirs. And, anyway, Incidentally, by the way, this town is Sephala. It's a town located just out of uh, Bath, Bathurst which is a town which is just west of Sydney to orientate yourself to Sephala it was it's a tiny place one stage in the 1850s it was a gold rush town that's why it exists and it had about 10,000 people but they left kind of pretty quickly once they dug out most of the gold Um, and by the time this film was made in 1950 they had about 140 people But it it did mean, though, that there were a lot of uh, useful buildings still left standing which they could use. That actor there is called uh, Charles McCallum. He was, uh, again, a very experienced actor from radio, theatre and film. His career spanned, um, he was in the silent version of the novel for The Term of His Natural Life, which came out in the 1920s. And he was also in the uh, famous Australian miniseries Return to Eden in the 1980s. So his career ran the real gamut. He was probably best known uh, for a radio role he did on a popular serial called blue hills anyway when the uh film this film was first announced the mccready brothers said that uh, six leading parts will be played by australians and four leading parts will be played by americans who would be imported so that was part of the deal they originally hoped for Rod Cameron or Glenn Langan to play the hero and for Vincent Price or Douglas Dunbrill to play the villain and Hilary Brooke or Kay Forrester to play the main love interest so there you go that's interesting that initial casting that they listed um only one of those turns up in the final film that's Douglas Dunbrill who we'll be meeting later on but of course Rod Cameron and Glenn Langan they were sort of two-fisted heroic types of the of the Jock Mahoney mould, so you can absolutely see that. I mean, Vincent Price, again, the villain in the Douglas Dumbril mould, and why, you know, Mr Dumbrill is is great. I mean, I I would have loved to have seen Vincent Price in the part. Um, So, yes, and the original director was, as I've mentioned, was meant to be John English. He was a a very, very experienced um, in in the field of B. Westerns. I ended, you know, and he uh, he co-directed a lot of uh, action serials, some with William Whitney, who's uh, he's a director whose sort of his reputation has risen in recent years because Quentin Tarantino is a big fan. Um, but anyway, John English ended up not, not making the film, and Leslie Slander was chosen instead. Uh, and he, like John English, had a background with a lot of B westerns. Um, the initial cameraman was meant to be Howard Green. He was Academy uh, kind of Award-winning. Cameraman, but the one they got in the end is, was still pretty good. Russell Harlan, he'd won, um, he was a very, very good uh, cinematographer who'd uh, worked a lot with Howard Hawkes. The budget was originally reported to be American $200,000, which was roughly Australian uh, £82,000. There are other sources which cite the budget as being £88,000. So it wasn't a huge budget film, but you know, it's still a decent swag of coin. Okay, those actors there, that's uh, Heidi Selden in the middle, as the sort of, I guess you'd call it the Marjorie Main role of uh, Alec Hillaway's wife. Um, she was an uh, experienced stage and radio actor. She had a long association with the Independent Theatre in Sydney, and the other actor there is imported, the one she's in the middle now, that's Vida Ann Borg. Uh, I'll be talking a bit more about her later on, but she's a very experienced Hollywood actor. So they imported four people from Hollywood and, and Vida. Is one of them. Anyway, the producer, Howard Brown, he'd made films all... The American producer, I should say. Sorry, he was part of the co-production. Uh, he'd made films all over the world, including Africa, South America, Spain, France, and the Hawaiian Islands. Um, he was particularly active in the late 20s and early 30s. He'd worked on uh, the film Taboo with Robert Flaherty and a film called Mamba made in Mozambique. You look at his IMDB credits. He's kind of got heaps from... Of shorts from 1926 to about 1931 and then it sort of cuts out there's a big gap from 1933 to this i sort of looked up what he'd done he seemed to be working more on the technical side of filmmaking on color stock and stuff but so but uh, this was a bit of a i guess a comeback into the world of producing for mr howard brown it didn't last very long he doesn't have many other credits after this but he was experienced in shooting in exotic parts of the world well exotic in hollywood uh, and so I guess a trip to Australia wouldn't have been scary. Sorry, just a brief note about those three actors there who've just walked in and are sitting down. The, uh, the Grant Taylor, Frank Ransom and Alan Gifford. So there is Grant Taylor on the left and Alan Gifford on the right. Grant Taylor was a very popular Australian actor, again, of stage and radio. But he was he had a moment as a film leading man as well. He was in um, Charles Chevelle's 1940 action film, The 40,000 Horsemen. He was actually terrific in that. And that film was a big success, one of the most popular Australian films ever up until then. And people thought that Grant Taylor might become a genuine star. He's really good in the role. But then uh, the war interrupted the momentum of his career. He had another lead in Rats of Tobruk, but that didn't do as well. And after after the war, he sort of never quite regained his earlier position. But he did have a very, very long uh, career, particularly on stage, he was a very popular stage actor for a long time, and he pops up in a lot of support roles in movies like this, but also uh, Long John Silver with Robert Newton, where he co-stars with his son Kit, who plays Jim Hawkins, but also His Majesty O'Keefe and the Siege of Pinchgut. And he eventually uh, went to um, England, and you know where he, where he was a very busy character actor up until his relatively early death. Uh, Grant Taylor, incidentally, is no relation to Rod Taylor. Just in case you're wondering, the two men did appear in um, in a short a documentary short called Inland with Sturt in 1951, but uh, they weren't actually related. And there's Douglas Dumbril, a very experienced uh, Hollywood actor, uh, often played villains in films like The Lives of the Bengal Lancer. When he came out, he said, "Yes, I play villains. That's what I do." <laughs> you know, so he's very, very accepting of his. Path in life. I think he's like in something like over 200 films. There's also Plus TV and, and whatnot. He, he was equally good in drama or comedy. He tended to play it straight. He's a very good villain in comedy. Um, he's just a, just a really good all round actor. Although, you know, it's not really surprising who the villain is going to be once you once you see his name on the credits. Now, just a quick note on the Australian producer of this film his name was Tom McCready, also known as T.O. McCready. He was a film director as well as being a producer who was also a distributor and uh, exhibitor for many years Um, tom and his brother alec worked at exhibitors in sydney from the 1920s onwards they owned a theater in double bay in sydney called the vogue in 1940 they formed embassy pictures who helped produce this and they made several short films in 1946 they re-recorded the uh, russian a russian film called memories harvest with english dialogue That was the first time that this had been attempted in an Australian film. That movie was about a Russian taxi driver who becomes a Bolshoi opera star, and uh, the actors they used for dubbing included Peter Finch, you know, the legendary Peter Finch, and uh, John Fernside. Anyway, the McCreadys decided to get into filmmaking after World War II and they made a movie, which I've mentioned before, called Always Another Dawn. That came out in 1948 and Guy Dolman was in it. And also uh, Charles Tingwell. It's not hard to source a copy of that movie. It's kind of an interesting wartime melodrama. Uh, what how would happen is both pro- brothers produced and Tom McCready would direct. Charles Tingwell, who was in the film, said that Tom McCready was a meticulous director who was easy to work with and who tried to get as much realism as possible into every shot. He said Alec McCready, his brother, was a cautious executive producer. Anyway, they were pretty happy with Always Another Dawn and they announced plans to make a couple of follow-ups. Um, they made a film afterwards called Into the Straight, which is a racehorse melodrama. Charles Tingle in that as well. That film didn't do as well. And, and I think they were maybe beginning to think... Um, Think internationally they said okay well let's maybe try to do a co-production in 1949 Alex McCready said 85 percent of screening time in Australia was taken up by American films British films occupied 14% leaving only 1% for films made elsewhere in the world including Australia And that's pretty much true Uh, the McCready's felt that any inroads on screening time made by Australian films would save dollars and Australian films given world screenings would earn dollars and so I, I think and it also could um, portray Australian character, Australian way of life and the scenery. Uh, and that was, all, that was all really, really true. So they were very passionate about um, starting up an uh, industry here. But fortunately, this, this ended up, spoilers, being the last film that they ever made. But in 1949, their program was to make five pictures, costing it around £50,000 each, they wanted to make in four months and they had a whole bunch of projects on the go one on the Flying doctor service in Western Australia an uh, adaptation of a book by Dale Collins called vulnerable they wanted to put Guy Dolman in that so when they made this movie they were really keen and they were hoping to make a bunch of others this was the one they managed to get up uh, probably because it uh, attracted some presumably some Hollywood finance I'm not actually sure where the money came from but I, I'm guessing it would come from from mostly from America. Okay, these two actors here, the henchmen. So I've talked about Grant Taylor. The gentleman on the far right is called Frank Ransom. Now, he's an interesting guy. What I've been able to find out, he was kind of a, a stockman, you know, an Australian bushman, I guess our equivalent of a cowboy, and he'd served in the services during World War II, but then he got a job on the Overlanders because of his skill with a horse helped him. Actually, he has quite a decent, tough uh, presence and uh, So he appeared in the, in the Overlanders in a support role and uh, that was a big success and that sort of kicked off a Quasi-film career. I don't think he would have been busy enough to do it full-time um, but he pops up in films like uh, Eureka Stockade and also uh, Kangaroo, the more uh, 20th century Fox film that was made after this. And so here he's sort of playing basically uh, a henchman. So he's quite a, quite effective, I think. He's a sort of actor If the industry a bit bigger. He would have been quite busy as a sort of stuntman. So, um, of course, Jock Mahoney himself was a, was a stuntman turned actor. Indeed, only a few years before this, he had been the stuntman for uh, another Australian, Errol Flynn, in the film called uh, The Adventures of, of Don Juan. The story for this was written by an Australian. The credits say it's based on a story by Tony Scott Veach. Well, he was mostly Australian. He was actually born in Scotland, uh, but he immigrated to Australia. And he was a very, very busy uh, writer. He wrote a lot of um, radio plays, but also pulp westerns. Um, He he specialised in action adventure, like amongst his radio plays. They had titles like Heart of the Territory and Overland Patrol. He also wrote spy quil- thrillers and historical fiction. Uh, he wrote he wrote scores of westerns, like literary score. This is at a time when the pulp western market was very strong in Australia. Uh, he often wrote them under pseudonyms, including uh, Scott McClure was his most common one. And he did the occasional feature film, like this one. But also uh, later on, he moved briefly to England, like many people did in the in the sixties. He worked in the Australian film industry. Um, among his credits was. Uh, the bloody judge a 1970 film but also a 1965 movie with richard todd called coast of skeletons so that's tony scott Veach. he's credited with the story the actual um screenplay was by a gentleman called sherman low he was a very experienced screenwriter who specialized in action melodramas he wrote a lot of uh, serials like the greenhorn strikes again and uh, the Phantom from 1943, which was actually a hugely pop- popular comic book in Australia and spe- specifically, but um, Sherman Lowe wrote the script for that. And you know, he was a B movie guy, like um, the, the, this film imported talent. They were all spe- specialized in, in Bs, except for Russell Harlan, who was like an A level cinematographer, but who had a background in Bs because uh, he'd worked on Hopalong Cassidy films. Now, uh, Leslie Solander, the director, he'd, uh, he he sort of had directed by this stage. I think he directed like twenty-eight Hopalong Cassidy movies, and also Tim uh, Tim Holt westerns. He'd done about ten of those over at RKO. Some of you may know Tim Holt. He played the lead in um, the Magnificent Andersons, directed by Orson Welles, and he pops up in films like My Darling Clementine and Stagecoach. But he's best known really, for a series of B-Westerns he made at RKO, which are, actually are very good specimens of the breed because they had a decent, decent budget. And Leslie Salander directed a whole lot of them. Um, and his um, recent movies, just before Leslie Salander came here, he just finished a film called Dakota Lil with Rod Cameron and Marie Windsor. And his uh, other recent movies had titles like Bell Star's Daughter and Panhandle. Uh, he wasn't in Australia very long, Mr. Solander. he uh, had to rush back to make four Tim Holt films for RKO. It's just a sharp contrast when you read about the accounts of, say, someone like Harry Watt, who directed The Overlanders, and Lewis Milestone, who directed Kangaroo. They were out in Australia for months and months and months, you know, absorbing the atmosphere, putting locations. Leslie Solander just sort of, like, arrived in, uh, in February, and by, I think, about May, he was gone. So he didn't stick around very long. He later said, uh, when talking about Australia, the one quote I've been able to find, he said, the facilities in Australia were rather primitive by Hollywood standards, but we had fun, loved the people, and got a kick out of the whole thing. Jock, as in Jock Mahoney, is without a doubt the best athlete I've ever seen, smooth and sleek as a cougar. That's a pretty big call from, from someone who's directed as many films as uh, Leslie Solander. I think he's directed, like, according to his Wikipedia page, uh, he's directed uh, like, 107 Westerns. That is a lot, and he's also directed uh, a lot of lot of television as well. So the uh, just a quick note on the uh, the cinematographer um, Russell Harlan. He'd uh, just made a few films for Howard Hawks when he agreed to came out here, including uh, I Was a war Bride and Red River. So. In, yeah, I, when I read that, I was, wow, that's a pretty big thing to go from those movies, like Howard Hawk was at the peak of Hollywood, then to come all the way out to Australia to make a um, B-Western. That was pretty weird, but I think he was friends with slander, and, and again, Russell Harlan had, had worked on a lot of um, Hopalong Cassidy films, and he, I guess he probably just wanted to come out to Australia, which would have been an interesting trip at the time, unusual at the time. Uh, he uh, he shares credit on this film with an Australian called Harry Malcolm. Now, I actually don't know why that's the case. Maybe Russell Harlan wasn't available for the whole shoot, or maybe it was a contractual issue. Um, Harry Malcolm was a pretty good photographer too, like the generally the standard of Australian cinematographers has always been pretty high, even since the silent era. And he, he'd worked on a couple of MacReady Brothers films. He'd worked on Always Another Dawn and Into the Strait. Well, I say a couple that only made two others. he worked on both of them. He'd also made a film, shot a film called Typhoon Treasure. Um, he doesn't have a super large amount of credits, but then they weren't making a super large amount of movies at the time. And he did a lot, he did a lot of documentaries for the government. Uh, Russell Harlan's credits are by contrast, incredibly, incredibly impressive. Yeah, he was, like, nominated for an Oscar several times, including uh, for the Howard Hawks film The Big Sky, The Blackboard Jungle, To Kill a Mockingbird, Hatari, The Great Race in Hawaii. Um, also, most notably, he did, uh, well, not most notably, but he, he was the cinematographer on Gun Crazy, that brilliant uh, cult movie, which is just a fabulous movie. And he and his uh, cinematography is great so yeah we're really lucky to lucky to have him i say we as sorry I, I didn't make the film but i just i guess i'm talking on behalf of australia it's hard not to when you uh, make this film i sorry i haven't talked about uh, alan gifford i didn't talk about him before he was an american who was living in australia at the time he wasn't he wasn't like out here with a show like raymond bailey he'd actually moved to australia um, he'd been a staff officer in world war 2 and he was living in Sydney and got into acting. And he wound up um, going to uh, Britain for a long, for the rest of his life, I think it was, and playing a lot of movies over there. So this film actually helped kickstart Alan Gifford's career. He was an actor before he he came to Australia. Should should by the way. Um. The uh, original cast um, was going to be Jock Mahoney, Douglas Dumbril, Vida Anborg, and Dorothy Malone. Dorothy Malone, uh, who later became very famous um, for uh, winning an Oscar for Written on the Wind, but by that stage she'd already appeared in the big sleep and that wonderful, you know, it's talking of Howard Hawks, who I've mentioned, that wonderful scene with Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, Dorothy Malone was meant to play the part that Martha High ended up playing, but uh, she fell ill, and so Martha High was a last-minute replacement. In January 1950, uh, Tom McCready flew into Armidale on a location to search of the New England area. They were originally thinking of filming this around New England. They were looking for a town they could photograph, so which is true to the period of the film, You know, a place with no telegraph poles or petrol stations or asphalt pavements. Um, they couldn't find what they wanted in New England, but they decided to make the film out of Bathurst, which is a bit further south. It said about 55 people would be... Like ha- involved in the making of the film, including the actors, technicians, cameramen, and whatever. So it wasn't a huge crew. Films like Eureka Stockade and the later 20th Century Fox Kangaroo, they had a really huge crew, but this was a, was a really tight crew. Now, uh, so the Australians were kind of basically shunted to the support roles, with the exception of, of Guy Dolman, uh, who's, I guess, the second, her- but he's the, very much the second heroic lead. Um, the initial reports with the Australian cast would include Guy Dolman, Grant Taylor, Queenie Ashton, Charles Tingle, Alec Kellaway, John Pegan, Alan Gifford and Larry Crowhurst. Now, uh, I just find it interesting because in the final film, several of those actors don't appear. Notably, Queenie Ashton, Charles Tingle, John Pegan and Larry Crowhurst. Uh, so assumingly, stuff happened and actors just fell through the cracks. It would make sense that Charles Tingle was... Considered for a role in this because he'd been in the MacReady brothers' two previous films. I wonder what party would have been up for. Um, maybe the Frank Ransom part. Or, you know, maybe he felt it wasn't worth coming out here, or, or something else could have could have come along. I see. Queenie Ashton was up for the role of, of Alec Kelleway's, um Alec Kellarway's uh, wife. Anyway, I think um, I think the actors they did get were fine. I don't think this is a badly acted film. Everyone's very competent. It's a very competent movie. I mean. That that probably sounds a bit backhanded, and maybe to some degree it is, but it's a it's a very entertaining, unpretentious, tight B-western. I think a lot of the times when um, overseas companies came to Australia, sometimes they would they would miss the mark. Like I feel, especially like a film like Kangaroo, which followed this a few years later, that you watch that and you feel it doesn't quite it doesn't quite get there. You can sort of sense what they're trying to do. It doesn't quite reach there. And also later on in the fifties the company came out to make uh, a version of the classic play Summer of the 17th Dole and that version doesn't quite get there either but I think this one hits its mark. Sorry, uh, just to pause, that actor there is Claire Woodlands. He is a, an Aboriginal actor who to be brutally frank haven't been able to find that much about. Um, it's the sort of part, that the, the Aboriginal actor who sort of took these sort of most of these roles in the 40s and 50s was a, was a man named Henry Murdoch Who's a fascinating uh, person and whose whose life should be better known? He was a stockman turned actor in films like *The Overlanders* and *Bitter Springs* and *Dust in the Sun*. He's uh, not as in his great screen presence, and not nearly as well known as uh, as he as he should be. Someone like, say, Robert Tudor Wiley, who was in Jeddah, is uh, better known. But um, and he normally sort of played these sort of roles, but um. But no, he doesn't, and they have this gentleman called Claire Woodlands, who I, I I don't know that much about, so sorry about that. But um, but if any if anyone cares to cares to fill me in, please please drop me a message. And there's the stuff with the boomerang, because this is very much Australiana as exotica, something which I think annoyed a lot of critics when this came out. But I mean, it is what it is. I mean, I guess Hollywood goes to Africa, they're going to shoot lions and hippos. They come to Australia, they're going to film kangaroos and koalas. Anyway, Guy Dolman, uh, who was in this, when he was making this film, he'd been on tour in a play called Edward, My Son, with uh, Robert Morley's company, and he had to get permission to appear in this. So here's some action sort of stuff. Um, Just a note on Sephala, that where this was shot, that town advertises itself as Australia's oldest Gold Rush town um and apparently it still looks a bit like a movie set uh they were still even though the big gold rush days were very very only lasted a very very short time um there was still some gold in the area so it attracted prospectors and some mining for a very long time it it um it was going till about 1948 they were still doing some commercial gold mining in the district uh the the town has been used for other movies, uh, which isn't surprising, I guess, considering it's not too far from Sydney. In 1974, it was used as a setting for a film directed by Peter Weir called *The Cast That Ate Paris*, which is a, a big cult movie, a fascinating film. Uh, and they also shot some scenes for a 1994 film called *Sirens*, that's with the Hugh Grant and Elle Macpherson in it. Um, you know, and both films, I think because the town looks old-worldy, for lack of a better word. The interiors were done in the studios of Commonwealth Film Laboratories in Sydney, and that was a that was a sort of a production house, and post-production house, which occasionally dabbled in making movies. Um, like uh, two of their more notable productions included Mystery Island, which was made in the 1930s. That was one where two of the leading actors, uh, it was it was filmed on... on um, Lord Howe Island or Norfolk Island, sorry I can't know off the top of my head, and two of the actors decided to take a boat back to the mainland and they disappeared and vanished and were never seen again, presumably drowned. So that's the 1937 film Mystery Island and they also made a film called Typhoon Treasure which Harry Malcolm who helped shoot this shot, that's a 1938 adventure film and they also invested in Rats of Tobruk, the Charles Chevelle movie which uh, Grant Taylor appears so here's some uh, stagecoach stage robbery. And even though this is a, a meat pie western, which is i.e., like an American western basically just transplanted to Australia, um, we did have coach services and they did get held up. Um, the most famous coach line in Australia was, of course, Cobb & Co. and uh, bushrangers would, would rob it. And there are very many Australian bushrange novels and plays and films where r- robbing the coach line Uh, Is a thing that happened, so so yes, so we do have there is a historical basis for this sort of stuff. Um, Filming started in March nineteen fifty. It went for about four weeks, which is a relatively short shoot. They uh, went on location first, and then they went to Sydney. It was relatively trouble. There was a there was a bit of rain, but uh, by April nineteen fifty, the lead actors from Hollywood were back in Hollywood and um, Leslie Solander flew back in May the film was edited by an Australian called Alex Alex Ezzard, who was probably the leading editor in the country in the 1950s well it is his na- name who pops up on uh, on all the uh, Australian feature films it's generally he's generally the guy who edited the, edited them all uh, there were some rain issues which I've mentioned uh, that it resulted in floods and that wrecked the company's equipment uh, and apparently uh, they also had a Bit of difficulty with untrained horses, which played a part in the film's action, but I, I don't think it was overly harsh. Of course, uh, Jock Mahoney there, he was a stuntman, so he would have been very good at action. And people like Grant Taylor and Frank Ransom were experienced at it too. I might just talk a little bit about Mr. Mahoney there, who's being held up by the baddies. Um, apparently, he was a breeder of horses in California before the war. During the war, he he saw uh, active active service. Um, he went to Hollywood for a film test after his discharge, and he wound up getting a uh, contract at Columbia Pictures. He was a protege of Gene Autry, and uh, just before he'd made this, he'd uh, just completed a role in a western called The Texas Dynamo with Charles Starrett. Uh, Mahoney went on to... Um, have a pretty decent career as a Western star appearing in various series and whatnot. He was also Tarzan in the Tarzan series. He was, he married, um, Sally Fields, mum, So he was Sally Fields, stepdad. And in her memoirs, she has some quite, uh, harsh things to say about him, but that's there if you want to follow that up. Uh, yes, which, which does actually make looking at this film a little bit difficult at times. Uh, he, he uh, was a very good screen presence. I feel never quite made it to the top rank of stars, but was always, you know, particularly good in action roles because of his his physical abilities. And I think he has a uh, quite a lot of charm and charisma. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's you know, like like it was either him or Rod Cameron, I guess, you know, or Glenn Langan, someone of that level. I think. Um, yeah, it was good to have Jock Mahoney. I actually think maybe they could have. Had, had him done more action, but I guess the time was, time was tight and the budget wasn't big enough to allow for something like that. Vita Anborg. oh, there's some kookaburras again because it's Australia and I just wanted to <laughs> remind the audience of that fact. Uh, Vita Anborg, who's his, uh, I guess, love interest, even though they don't spend that much time together, she was a model who'd uh, turned to acting and had a pretty decent career. In the early 40s, 1940s, uh, she'd had a nasty car accident that almost uh, killed her. and she needed I think the press report said she needed like something like five operations over two years to repair her looks. Uh, she'd recently before making this, she'd recently appeared in a Gre Garson movie called Julia Misbehaves and also a film called One Last Fling with Zachary Scott and Alexis Smith. and she'd uh, just um, played what she described as a very mean heavy in a Tim Holt Western called Gun Thunder when she came out here. She's the one who tended to get most of the publicity. She said she was practicing her Australian accent because if it not good, she'll be axed out of existence. I'm not quite sure that she ever quite mastered that, but anyway. Um, she was married to Andrew McGlaglan, who was an assistant director at the time, and he was the son of the actor Victor McGlaglan, and Andrew McGlaglan later went on to become a notable director, um, particularly of like, films starring John Wayne, but also The Wild Geist. Um Vida said she was crazy about her part in this film because uh, she normally played the other women. She said years of playing meanies and the other women in front of the cameras can be frustrating, but uh, her character in this film, she said at the time, is a warm down-to-earth and a good sport. She also said Australia didn't mean a thing to her before she came to Australia except as that place down under. She didn't read up on anything about Australia before she came there but she praised the oysters and lobsters, <laughs> so you know, I mean, in, in Vita Anne Borg's fairness, you know, that's a quote from that's a quote from a newspaper article at the time, you know, whenever a, a visiting celebrity, even now when they come out, it's like, what do you think of Australia? Tell us how great Australia is. Um, yes, but she's likable presence in this film, even though her part isn't very big. And there's a platypus; <laughs> they're really going for the animals in this movie. <laughs> they're like really laying it on with a drow. Incidentally, um, of course, the budget wasn't big enough uh, to pay for color photography, which I completely understand with. But at the same time, I think is a bit of a shame because um, I think uh, because this whole, how amazing would the strange locations have looked in color. I mean, you just have to look at something like Kangaroo, you know, which came out a few years later, which dramatically is flawed, but the visuals are, are great, and I think that might have helped this film have more of a life afterwards. But of course, they went to know that the The B movie western was sort of on the very much on the way out by the time Mm. this was made, so uh, I have no idea how how well it recouped. I do know they were going to plan a series of these movies. They intended to make a couple of Kangaroo Kid films because that was the that was the B movie western way. Like they didn't they try not to make just one-offs. They tried to make a series. It was like I guess the equivalent of of a TV series in many ways. Um, like the Hopalong Cassidy series, or the Tim Holt series, or the George O'Brien series, you'd, the Gene Autry, the Three Musketeers—you'd go along to see your regular hero at the movies, and they were hoping to do a bunch of these Kangaroo Kids. But it was a, by 1950, TV was just growing bigger and bigger and bigger, and the profit margin on on these B-Westerns were getting smaller and smaller. Indeed, the Tim Holt films that Leslie Slander. Walked on um, those that profits just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Eventually, they just stopped making them. Of course, the Westerns, the the B Western, just really migrated to um, to television, where it proved you know successful. It is a shame they they didn't then morph into a Kangaroo Kid TV series. I mean, like I'm sure it would have been hokey, but it just would have been offered lots of employment to Australians and opportunities. They did end up sort of making a version, not not the people who made this, but there was a sort of. Meat pie western show it was called whiplash made in the early 60s who had a coach driver that starred peter graves from mission impossible that had a short run and um so yes yeah, so they did sort of <laughs> they did wind up making a uh, a regular series anyway um alan gifford yeah just i should briefly talk about him again he was um i'd mentioned he was on staff he was on general eisenhower's personal staff during the war he handled all eisenhower's entertainment problems <laughs> so you know like he was the he was the head guy and he, and he worked at the um war crimes commission at nuremberg and uh so he was um he was uh, very much plugged in so very you know a lot of a lot of actors went into the army and worked into the it in, you know helping entertain the troops, but not many of them wound up as a colonel on Eisenhower's personal staff. So he was a very, very high-ranked uh, person in that regard. So, yes, yeah, so when this film was being made, or just before it was made, McCready said they wanted to make um, a bunch of these sort of low-budget quickie movies made at the American market. Uh, and, they, and the MacReady said he believed that one well-produced all-Australian film could net about a million dollars from overseas screenings. And he reckoned his company could turn out about 10 films a year. So that was, that was very, very bold, you know. Um, but, you know, good on him for, um, for being positive about it. Uh, and he, even after this film had been made when it was being edited in July 1950, it was reported that Mahoney would return to Australia to make two sequels once he'd finished making the film Santa Fe. Uh, the film was uh, reportedly released in about 3800 theaters in America that's a press release I haven't got anything to back that up apart from that and they were going to make the f- dub the film into Spanish Italian French and Portuguese which wasn't uncommon for a, a lot of movies but um, the production of B westerns was, was very very streamlined however the film was not a uh, was not a huge box office success it wasn't really the film's fault I think the film all hits the beats that it Sent out to do, but it was just too hard at the time uh, with the environment. Variety magazine called this a smartly paced cops and robbers pick that should pull down a healthy coinage where they like their fare raw, if slightly corny. So that's just how the reviewers in that magazine spoke and or wrote rather, and I think they were accurate. Yeah, it is. It's a. It is smartly paced. It's a cops and robbers pick. Um, I. I think some of the writing is quite clever in particular I like how Guy Dolman is a, is a good guy but he suspects Jock Mahoney of doing it it's not hard to guess who the villain is but I mean that's not super hard it's um there's some stuff coming up involving the father which is quite emotionally powerful that's maybe sort of skated over I th- wish more had been done with Vita and Borg but um but yeah I think this is a this is a solid movie I think Jock Mahoney is a good hero I think Grant Taylor and Frank Ransom are excellent henchmen and you know and there's, there's some pretty good pretty good action. Um, American reviews, sorry, Australian reviews were mixed. Some people cringe, some people took it in the right spirit. The Sydney Sun Herald said uh, this small-scale outdoor film produced on location in australia by a hollywood company won't raise much eye or hilarity amongst australian audiences through lack of authenticity it won't raise much excitement either so that's a backhanded notice the uh, adelaide advertiser said um, counting heads the australians seem to be unduly represented among the baddies <laughs> So Alan Gifford, Grant Taylor and Frank Ransom enter the spirit of skullduggery with zest. But Douglas Dumbrill recalls the Hollywood tradition of polished villainy. I mean I guess if you want to get pedantic about it, yes, Australian villains outnumber Americans. I guess mate what is it, two two? Yes, Douglas Dumbrill and and Alan Gifford who's sort of half a villain. Frank Ransom Yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> if you wanna if you wanna add. Um the uh herbert herbert mercury did review which said the story often smacks of american western technique but action suspense a wealth of australian scenery and adaptation of incidents to australian customs should make the film entertaining experienced americans act splendidly and encourage the australian players to give good performances so that's a slightly culturally cringy review but i mean i think guy Domin and grant taylor especially were and alec keller were all excellent actors who'd given. Really good performances before encountering Hollywood, but um, well, I do like this how the script does account for the fact that it's in Australia. There are some touches. It, it clearly had an Australian working on it when there was Anthony Scott Veach. Things like oh, we don't carry guns around here, and, and it's just things like that. There are some, you know, it's not it's not written with complete ignorance about Australia. Um, despite all the shots of, of kangaroos and whatnot, it, the the screenplay does have Australian fingerprints on it. Clearly, even though the leads are all American, it's very American in tone. Uh, the reviewer for the Melbourne Argus uh, called it a typical cheap Western quickie, but it also said it was the best-handled film yet made in the country. Well, that's a, I'm not quite sure I agree with that, but... Um, The Argus said, in spite of the mediocre quality of cast, the stereotyped script, and the general suggestion of cheapness, the Kangaroo Kid has all the virtues of the slick American-directed show in being far away the best-handled film made in this country to date. Unlike all other Australian-made movies, pictures, the show moves, the camera work and the editing is smooth, and it all is nicely tidied up and has a distinctly professional air about it. Our local producers should closely follow... So, sorry, I should closely study the simple, direct and business-like way this show has been handled and go and do likewise. The Kangaroo Kid adds no prestige to Australian movie making, but it does hand out a lot of useful chips for local production. You're like, oh, okay, that's one... <laughs> that's a, Again, it's a very cultural, cringy review. The film is very competently made, but I do think... Australian, you know, Australian, and Some Australian films have been slow and could be be a lot faster. But you watched something like, you know, the Sons of Matthew's got plenty of pace, and so is the Overlanders. Incidentally, if you if you're enjoying this and and you haven't seen the Overlanders, I, w- I would check that out. That's a, that's a more Australian Western. You know, there's not a, there's no shootouts and and whatnot, but it's there's plenty of horse action and it's, and it's very exciting. Anyway, so the film wasn't super successful at the box office. They didn't end up making a series. The McCready made No More Films, which is a, is a great shame. They obviously had great passion for the industry. And they you know, they helped, helped launch the career of Charles Tingle, who became a significant figure in the Australian film industry, film and TV industry uh, as an actor, and, uh, but also later as a producer and a director. And Charles Tingle always spoke very highly of the McCreadys. Um, it just didn't pan out. But um, So this film does qualify, I call it, a meat pie western. It wasn't the first American uh, sort of western set in Australia. The first one I've been able to find was a 1928 film called The Bushranger. That was an MGM film about an English gentleman unjustly sentenced to Van Diemen's land, which is Tasmania, which was a penal colony, who escapes and becomes a bush ranger. That stars Tim McCoy, who was a popular western star of the 1920s and 30s. And it was it was all made in America. Um, I actually haven't seen that film, but I'm, I'm guessing that uh, the Australian setting was just to maybe make a western with a bit of a bit of a difference. A more widely seen film, which I have seen, is called Stingery. That's uh, that's about a gentleman bush ranger. That was based on a series of stories by a gentleman called E. W. Hornung, who also wrote Raffles. You know about the gentleman thief. And uh, he, he wrote these stories about the gentleman bushranger called Stingery. And in 1934, RKO made a film which stars Richard Dix and Irene Dunn. It's an odd sort of film. It's directed by William Wellman, you know, like so, some top level talent. But it sort of turned into a, into a musical uh, because, you know, horse riding operators were in fashion at the time, like The Desert Song and Rio Rita. But it is, it is set in Australia. Uh, you know, Richard Dix does play a bushranger. So if you're interested in your meet, Pye Weston's. I rather urge you to track down Stingery. It's not hard. Um, A US-style Western that was actually made in Australia before this was also Wrangle River that was shot in Australia and distributed by an American studio, in that case, Columbia, based on a story by none other than Zane Grey with an American director, Clarence Badger, and a star, Victor Jory. Uh, The screenwriters were Australians. That's Charles and Elsa Chevelle, who I've talked about elsewhere you can feel it's really like a, it's a hollywood western um imported imported into australian setting uh some interesting, you know it's not it's not a bad Ota as they and they call it um it has quite an interesting climax which is a, a a duel with a duel with whips you know the the hero and the and the baddie fight each other with whips which is actually and which is weirdly enough that's how the finale ends of the kangaroo the 1952 film i've turned into talked about a few times that ends with a whip jewel as well. I don't know what it was but something something in the air. Um, another another uh, Hollywood Meat pie Western was Captain Fury. that one was all made and that came out in 1939 and, and that actor Douglas Dunbrilllo appears in it. It was made by Hal Roach, who was best known for his comedies. I mean, he occasionally made other films, and uh, Captain Fury was one such movie. That's a, it's a Bush Ranger epic. I mean, really, it's a Western set in Australia with, I think, the word uh, <laughs> Bush Ranger written, you know, the word cowboy crossed out and Bush Ranger written instead. Although it does acknowledge that Australia was a penal colony. That one's got a fantastic cast actually it's quite a good film i enjoy i mean i don't get upset about hollywood's depiction of, of australia being inaccurate i mean hollywood's depiction of american history was inaccurate um it's kind of flattering and i find it fascinating to see um captain fury stars brian Ahern, um who is, is, is in the title role but it's also got george zucco and victor McLaglen and john carradine paul lucas and douglas dumbrill from this movie that's like a, that's a really, really good cast for essentially, I mean, I guess it it was a B, Captain Fury. Like it wasn't an A, maybe it was like an A-. minus. But yeah, if you're, if you're into meat pie westerns, Stingery and Captain Fury are definitely, definitely worth watching. Every now and then people will continue still to make attempts uh, at Australian style westerns. Um, the Overlanders was a particularly successful kind. That I wouldn't classify that as a meat pie Western because that feels like an inherently Australian story. I think that's because in part um, Henry Watt was out here for several years. He was the director and writer of that, and he was he was out here looking for a subject matter for a film, and he really got to know the country and the people. And um, the story of that film is a, is a cattle drive, but it's very much rooted in Australian culture and you know and in sensibility. And it's a r- really really good film. A more obviously Western tale by the English was the version of Robbery Under Arms. I said when this film was being made, um, Kenji Hall was hopefully hopeful of making a version of the uh, Bush Ranger novel, Robbery Under Arms, which I guess is probably the classic Bush Ranging novel story that's been written. Rough Boulderwood, it's been filmed a bunch of times and also turned into several stage plays. Uh, Kenji Hall could never get the rights or get the money, it was always a bit. Confusing. Um, bush ranger films were actually banned in Australia for a long period of time. You may not know that. I guess if you're listening to this commentary, I assume you do. But like bush ranger films were the most successful in Australia from the beginning. Uh, the world's first feature film, the story of the Kelly Gang, was a bush ranger movie, and, and there was a boom of them in the early 1900s up until 1912. And what happens is the government worried about all these. Australian audience is going to see films about bush rangers, so they, they banned it. I mean it wasn't a total ban, but it was in a couple of states and that was enough to really kill it off as a genre. And for the next couple of decades they you know, filmmakers would occasionally sort of drift back to the genre and try to sneak one past the censor or be about to make it and then not go through with it. Um, and then eventually the ban was lifted by which stage people I guess didn't care as much. But it was just just goes to show the Australian filmmakers have been very lucky in the support the government has given them, but also at times they have suffered in the history of this country where the government making silly decisions and banning Bush Ranger films is one such. Anyway, I'm getting a little bit off the topic. But um, a version of Robbery Under Arms was made in 1957 by, uh, by an English company called Rank. And that that feels like a, a sort of British attempt at, a, at American Westerns, only set in Australia, like it uses a lot of Western tropes and whatnot. Peter Finch is in that and also Ronald Lewis and um, David McCallum from man from Uncle and his then wife Jill Island so uh, there you know it's a film with some good stuff again the visuals look amazing it's shot in color not quite not qu- doesn't quite all get there it's not as fulfilled as artistically as this movie I would say for even though maybe the I guess you could argue the bar was low on this one, but I feel this movie actually sets out everything that it attempts to do, whereas the 1957 of Robbery Under Arms doesn't do that. In 1960, there was a, a Christian meat pie western called Shadow of the Boomerang. It's not a very well-known film. and wasn't hugely successful, um, but it was inspired by the uh, Billy Graham, the Anvil Belgicist sorry uh, he made a trip to Australia which was hugely popular um, my parents had told me my, my mother went out to see him in concert it was like a, it was like a rock concert and Billy Graham fever swept the nation and um, that prompted in the, in a film being made uh, which was sort of like a Western about an, an American who learns to overcome his prejudice against Aboriginals called Shadow with a boomerang I mean I guess that's re- it's really a melodrama set in the outback rather than a Western. But it's uh, yeah a little-known film at a time when Australia was making very, very few films. They made a sort of Christian Christian Western. Also in the 60s, when hardly any Australian movies were being made, um, the Japanese came out here and they made a Western. Uh, Japan occasionally made its, its own Westerns. And uh, they did one shot in Australia called The Drifting Avenger. That came out in 1968. That's about a Japanese in the California Gold Rush who uh, seeks revenge against some outlaws, and it stars uh, Ten Kakakura, who uh, pops up in Hollywood films like Black Rain and Mr. Baseball. So yeah, it's it's weird the other countries who have made westerns. I I once did an article on meat pie westerns for Filming Magazine. It's up there on the internet if you just want to Google. Fifty meat pie westerns, and and yeah, like Russia, Russia made theirs, and of course everyone knows about the spaghetti westerns. But there's ones from all sorts of other countries as well, embracing it and reinventing it. In more recent years, after the revival, um, there was an Australian film called Raw Deal, which is sort of like an an Australian spaghetti western. Uh, It sort of has the plot of the Magnificent Seven, but it has a sort of more European Western feel to it, more violent. That's a that's an interesting interesting sort of movie, with plenty of action. Of course, um, there was the Tom Selleck film, quickly Down Under. You know, like Jock Mahoney, Tom Selleck comes out, plays a plays a um, plays an American who comes to uh, Australia and helps save the day. Although the initial setup of that film is different. He gets he gets brought out to be an enforcer for a landowner who's played by Alan Rickman, and he discovers that his job is killing local Aboriginals, something which unfortunately had a lot of basis in historical reality. And uh, only Tom Selleck, because he's a goodie, he turns the corner and, and helps beat the baddies. And that had... Uh, that film was actually weirdly a lot like Kangaroo Kid in many ways. I think that was actually commented on when Quigley Down Under came out, like as in the the leads were all pretty much imported and you had um, Australians relegated to support roles. Although in, in Quigley's case, the director was an Australian, Simon Winsor. Simon Winsor's actually directed a lot of westerns in, in Hollywood, uh, in particular the miniseries version of Lonesome Dove, which is probably... I guess the would you say it's like it's definitely a masterpiece of the uh, of the of the '80s in terms of, of the western genre. And Here's Douglas Dunbrill pro- pro- propositioning Martha High in the back in the back of a uh, of a coach, just in time to show how bad he is. So uh, my favourite Martha High movie is actually a more obscure one. It's uh, First Men in the Moon. Um, that's a, that's a film, mate, shot in Britain where she winds up, uh, it's set in Victorian England and she winds up on a rocket ship that's in the moon and they sort of encounter aliens there. I oh, don't know why I mentioned that. Just, <laughs> I just, just really enjoy it. And he's the, is uh, the police off to save the day. And it, sorry. And an Australian, an Australian is in First Men on the Moon, by the way. Um, Peter Finch, he has a cameo as a sort of bailiff character, I think the actor, the actor who was meant to play that role didn't turn up that day. It was late or something, and, and Peter Finch was making a film or visiting. He was in around, and he agreed to play the role, and it's kind of fun. He was uh, Peter Finch had actually just left Australia, so he wasn't a candidate for that. Just a note on Quigley Down Under. It starred um, Tom Selleck, but actually, I think it was originally developed for a whole. For Kirk Douglas had the rights to it for a while when he came out to Australia to make uh, Man from Australia River which that's a more traditional Australian Western. Uh, he tried to get up quickly down under, but couldn't, couldn't get it to happen. In uh, recent years, uh, more uh, meat pie Western, more recent vintage was The Proposition. It's a bush ranger film. It's, it's, uh, it's a brilliant movie, like very confronting and harrowing with a script written by Nick Cave, who then, you know, as well as being a hugely successful singer and songwriter, then has turned out to be a really excellent screenwriter as well. Um, it's a very powerful film that you know. We were, I, I would classify as as a meat pie western because it feels more influenced by um by Hollywood Hollywood films than uh, than Australians. But you know that's just my judgment. You know when I say meat pie western, it does sound like a dismissive comment, but um I don't doesn't mean the films can't be amazing as well. I think Australian Australian bush ranger films feel like a separate thing, and sometimes bush rangers you know like like an inherently australian bush ranger tale feels like a separate thing to a meat pie western because it's got its own literature literary tradition you know films like captain thunderbolt and whatever whereas like i classify meat pie western as something where you're basically just importing all the tropes and dressing up with a bit of local color now here comes the big shootout at the end bang 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 I should also uh, mention the film Australian films made in the um, early nineteen twenties and late nineteen tens, which starred Snowy Baker. He was a uh, a hugely popular sportsman he, in Australia in the early part of the twentieth century, and he you know he's famous for being really good at all different sorts of sports. And what happened was he um they decided. Money men decided to turn him into a movie star, which showed off his physical ability. And he made a couple with uh, an American writer-director team that was of Bess Meredith and Wilfred Lucas. And Bess Meredith actually, she was a top. She became r- later on after that a top Hollywood screenwriter, and she was uh, later became married to Michael Curtiz. She was married to Wilfred Lucas, but it didn't work out. And uh, only one of their films exist it's called the man from kangaroo and you can get a copy of that uh, online australia also had a tradition of 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 sort of colonial melodrama that was often about um, people running outback stations or farms you know battling against the banks and the weather and and bush rangers and whatnot Um, it was sort of popularized in a play from 1910 called the squatter's daughter that was turned into a film 1933, an Australian film directed by Kenji Hall, who I've mentioned uh, a few times, and um, you know, you know, with the with the she's in love with a handsome foreman who has a past, and the the neighbor wants to possess her land, and she can ride a horse as well as a guy, all all, all that sort of stuff. That was a, that was a very specific. Particularly, and a quite popular strain of uh, action melodrama in Australian theatre and Australian film, and it and it lingers on to the present day. I mean, something like MacLeod's Daughter, a TV series uh, from over a decade ago, that was hugely popular internationally, and that was very much in the spirit of something like something like um, The Squatter's Daughter. Of course, that was more female focused, and I really still think there would be a, a massive market for something for something like that. This film isn't particularly female focused at all. Of course, it it's uh, it's mainly about the boys. But again, it was its main target audience was uh, was young boys to to watch it. Uh, Bitter Springs, which was the uh, a commercially unsuccessful film made by Ealing Studios in the wake of the success of The Overlanders, that sort of has a bit of Elements of, of Western tropes in it. That's about a about a pioneer family, Australian inverted commas pioneer family, who come to out to a property and, and find that the, uh, the Aboriginals are, are are there, you know, and so they wind up clashing clashing with them. Of course, that's a massive issue in Australian history: the battle between white settlers and uh, and the Aboriginal inhabitants. And it's, just, it's still a very very hot topic subject today and that film is one of the few that actually attempted to tackle it um, didn't do it in a way that was quite successfully dramatically but it, it did try and it did acknowledge these things happen and often that's just entirely avoided uh, similar issues I think American films have with the the, the, the deal with the, the issues involved with the um, original Indian inhabitants of the land and Bitter uh, Springs did try, but the public wasn't willing to embrace it. The film wasn't successful, and which is a shame because it was really an attempt to do something to do with a very important issue in Australian society in Australian history. But it didn't work out. Of course, this film doesn't try anything like that. These are quite. This is quite a good horse tracing scene here incidentally, by the way although at least it does have an Aboriginal character and yes that Aboriginal character is used as a f- sort of form of exotica but I guess at least he is seen they haven't I haven't ignored him so to speak um, yes yeah, the Australian film industry's treatment of its indigenous peoples hasn't always been fantastic um, and often it's particularly at this stage uh, Aboriginal people reduced to being a piece of exotica but at at least they are being seen and that and that is something that's quite a good good shot there too um chips rafferty even starred as his own sort of cowboy hero shortly after this um he was in a film called the phantom stockman uh that came out in 1953 and that's uh that's like it's an interesting looking film it's interesting to watch for, uh, for Australians in particular, it's a little bit slow moving compared to Hollywood. It certainly not, doesn't have the pace of something like this and all the action packed stuff. Um, you know, this one really hits, hits its beats and does what, it, does what it tries to do very, very well. Grant Taylor, of course, who, who I talked about, he plays one of the henchmen, he starred in a film called Captain Thunderbolt, which was made a few years after that uh, 1953 film. Um, that was directed by a guy called Cecil Holmes who was a bit of a, a bit of a left winger in real life. Um, So he sort of made it, constructed it so that Thunderbolt was more a victim of the upper classes um, than a, um, a, you know, like a, you know, which is, that's a sort of stock true thing with, with your, with your outlaws in movies to sort of make them, it's poor them. It's not their fault. Um, However, The glaring thing about captain thunderbolt i'm talking about the treatment of aboriginal people is um in real life captain thunderbolt had an aboriginal wife who was crucial to his career and indeed helped him you know helped him a lot of his escapades and she's completely rewritten out of his life in the film that was grant taylor's last lead role anyway and uh but i think probably the best hollywood film made in australia was the Sundowners, and that came out about a decade after this. That was uh, directed by Fred Zinnemann with Robert Mitchum from a um, novel by John Cleary. and That's excellent. Thank you very much for joining me for this uh, commentary. I know it's not long, and to be honest, I ran out of stuff to say towards the end because there's really not that much to say about um, about the Kangaroo Kid. It's an unpretentious western. Uh, it does what it does what it tries to do. Uh, it was one of the very few films made. It's a shame it they kind of didn't try to do that a few years before they did try to you know they, they did try with Wrangle River and they were going to make a sequel to Wrangle River at one stage but it didn't end up happening and, and neither there was to kangaroo kid but it, it does exist and it's a it's a, it is a time capsule um, so thank you very much for listening cheers